a story of a Ukrainian village had tortured by the Russian soldiers. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Mykola, the acting head of Nechvolodivka, a village near Kupyansk in Kharkiv Oblast, was twice kidnapped and tortured by the Russian occupiers. We went to his village and spoke to him and his family. In this episode we tell you the story of him and his family and try to look at the patterns of Russian cruelty during the occupation. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, the chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist, director of international outreach at the Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, Tanya, let's discuss uh, what we have seen in our recent trip to the east, to the eastern part of Ukraine. We actually went to the northern parts of the Kharkiv Oblast and uh, talked to, uh, for example, to the acting mayor of the village called Nechvolodivka, which is very, very close to Kupiansk. And as we know, the Kupiansk direction is also a very hot direction. So Russians try to... Uh, go again uh, from the north uh, of the Kharkiv Oblast and um, and uh, create the the battlefields there. But we talked to a man and his family and his family, Mikola and Natalia, his wife, and their grandson Stepan. So what we learned. Yes, this was very important journey for us. Uh, let's situate it for our audience. Nishvolodivka is uh, several kilometers from Kupiansk and uh, 300 in population before the big invasion. Uh, very tiny village in, in, in fact. And this couple, uh, Mikola and his wife Natalia, they are teachers, they are both teachers uh, at the local school. It, quite a prosperous village before the big invasion, before this Russian invasion. But unfortunately, this very village was occupied in the first hours or days of the after the Russian invasion. And these people were suspicious for, for, for occupiers because both had these pro-Ukrainian views, which were in, in contrast with what occupiers expected. So, uh, they had, they have two sons with their families. One was working uh, the railway and another one was military. This one, which was military, he left uh, the village, so he wasn't here, but the eldest son who worked at railway station, they were inside, uh, he was inside the village the whole time. So a couple in their 50s, I would say, 50s, 60s, maybe maybe 50s, Mm, uh, energetic people, um, public people. Uh, Mikola was working a lot with kids. He was well known in the, by the community. And unfortunately, after the first weeks, uh, weeks of the occupation, he was arrested. And the most tragic thing about this arrest was that he was denounced by somebody from the village. And so Russians came at their house 
And uh, we talked to Natalia, his wife, and he described the scene of an extreme cruelty, extreme aggression. They were literally crying, shouting at the whole family, regardless that there were children present on the side. They were crying, they were trying to, to play this game of, you know, just arresting somebody. And then just imagine somebody breaks up into your house, he takes a member of your family, and then they disappear. And you barely know what is really happening, and you, you're really frightened, and you don't know how to get in touch with somebody who was arrested, and you understand that there is no law, no rules, and no clear understanding what will be next. So the important thing is that in the first days of the invasion, so we're talking about uh, February 2022 and probably early March, there was mostly people from the so-called LNR, the Luhansk, Luhansk Narodna Respublika, Luhansk People's Republic, uh, who came to this village. And uh, so uh, their neighbors, they're your neighbors, right? So from those territories which were earlier occupied by the Russians in 2014. And uh, there was this feeling of, being a neighbor. So we, we caught our interlocutor several times on this phrasing as if it was kind of a Ukrainian power. So Ukrainian, not Russian, not FSB. It was not Ukrainian, Ukrainian, right? So Ukrainian occupied by the Russians, but still people who are close. And there is differentiation between LNR and uh, so-called LNR and Russia. It's quite telling, quite interesting. But then they said the, the Russians, the real Russians came, the FSB, and here the pattern of cruelty has changed because it appears that these people are professionals of cruelty. So they talk in a different way, they behave in a different way, they really... Uh, shouting at them, they were really acting as big kind of uh, sadistic masters uh, who were denigrating them and uh, when they were arresting them, right? So this this is an important difference. And uh, we noticed that in it depends on the region, it depends on the place, who is, for example, more cruel, Russians or the so-called Russian-occupied republics, so-called DNR and LNR, who is more cruel? In some cases of Ukraine, we see that people tell us that it's LNR who are more cruel. In some other places, people tell us, look, if you take LNR and DNR, so-called, uh, then those who are like conscious, uh, those who are fanatics, I would say, in these uh, things, they are cruel. Those who are simply mobilized in the armies of those so-called so LNR and DNR, they are not that cruel. But here we were told about this real pattern of cruelty. And uh, with us there was a Ukrainian painter, uh, Sergei Zaharov, who also uh, unfortunately spent some time uh, in Donetsk, in the so-called prisons, or Padval, as, as it is called, 
in underground and uh, being subject to torture. In I think he also spent in this isolatia, right, the, the cultural place, art place, art, art space, which was turned into a prison, described by um, by Stanislav Asseev's, uh book about this. And, uh, of course, said he uh, recognized what Mikola was saying because the practices are the same. So the torture with... Uh, with electricity, the torture, uh, and and remember that phrase that Mikola said, which is very symbolic phrase, right? Yes, he said that he, that he was tortured many times. By the way, he was quite laconic about uh, when we asked what precisely happened to him. And I guess it was because his wife was close to him and he was trying to to hide in a way what was really happening. happening. But he said that the most important thing is to not to fall physically. So if you if you fall, they will beat you until the death. So you, they will just kill you. So they beat you and you have to to stand up. So just to, not to fall uh, when you are you are beaten. And a tiny man. He's not uh, athletic. Uh, he looks like an intellectual. He doesn't look like a stone man. Just an ordinary. Tiny man with glasses, and I, I imagine how how courageous he was just to stand up uh, while being beaten for 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 many many hours, many days. And uh, we can also imagine the suffering of his family, of his wife, because she was proactive. By the way, she was not afraid to come out and to to walk in inside the village and to ask where he was detained and what was really happening. And for the first time, he, she was designed in exact place when when where he was. And a couple of days later, they released him. Uh, but they already knew that they will be followed for forever and they had to be extremely cautious. But can you imagine the whole family, a woman uh, with her daughter and with the husband of his daughter and with his son and with kids, they have two grandchildren inside the house waiting for for the grandfather to come back. So this is um, a real pattern of uh, terrorist pattern in a way because you you just you, not only you beat people but you just uh, keep people and keep their families in a complete uh, uh, misunderstanding of what's going on. So they are just not informing what's going on. And I was impressed by the way. By the way, she's teaching, if I'm not mistaken, Ukrainian literature, but she reads a lot. And she explained one important detail, detail which impressed me. She told me then when occupiers said her that yes, you can, you can bring something. To, we will give it to him. She brought uh, some food, but she was cautious enough to pack. I don't know two packages of cucumbers, two packages of uh, what else uh, of meat maybe. And so everything in two packages. So for them to be able to take one and to give another one to her husband. And she read about this practice in books, in books about Soviet camps, about Soviet uh, totalitarian system and Soviet repression. So, and later on she discovered that her husband really indeed, she, uh, she received these packages, these foods and he was able to eat. 
Yeah, so 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 we see how these patterns repeat, and uh, this is a s- stories that we are t- t- telling you in this podcast. This is a one of the uh, things that we repeat here is that history is repeating here, and uh, the history of this invasion is a kind of a repetition uh, of what happened one hundred years ago, eighty years ago during Stalinist times. We see these things going on over and over again. We see after the uh, the explosion of the Kachovka Dam, for example, it is a kind of a repetition of what happened to Dnipro has another dam during the Second World War, uh, exploded by the Red Army. But also when Russians uh, were not letting people leave the flooded villages. This is what happened on the left bank of Dnipro right now. And uh, this is what was happening during Holodomor, during the Great Famine, when people already who were already suffering from the famine, trying to leave the villages, were not let go, were not, were actually shot when they were trying to leave the villages. right? And all this shooting of evacuation corridors, all this repeats, all this violence repeats. Another important thing is that what Mikola told us is that the Russians, when they were torturing him, uh, were asking him, where is Stepan Bandera? And this is also something that is, you know, hilarious, tragicomic for us, because for them it is a real important question. And um, it seems that those people who were asking him about this really, truly believe that Stepan Bandera is alive, that it is somebody from the present, not from the past. And here we see this collusion of of the past and the present. So you don't know the Russian uh, the Russian soldiers who, who did that, who asked this question. They don't know where the past ends and where the present begins. Yes, exactly. So the kind of uh, confusion about what is really happening, and it could seem hilarious, but this is what exactly is happening. So, and they were considered, um, Mikola and his wife were considered uh, extremists for only being patriotic. By the way, Mikola was known in the village precisely because he worked a lot with kids. They were reading literature, they were organizing some, some activities with school children, and precisely because he knew about what was happening in the past, he was perceived with a lot of sus- suspicion. I the, the 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 biggest tragedy for for us is that there were locals who denounced him. By the way, it is precisely what happened to Ukrainian writer Volodymyr Vakulinka earlier in Izum. Unfortunately, he was denounced by local people who denounced him to occupiers, and then occupiers arrested him, and then he they killed him. So we told this story many times already, but this is really tragic, and maybe. Maybe the most tragic in this story is that after the liberation, uh, this family is still living in the same village where 
people who renounced this family, they still live, they're still their neighbors. So, and when we ask this question, how, how do, how do you manage to, to, to live such, in such a situation? The response of Mikola was quite easy. So we, we have to do so. So there's nothing to do about that. Neither is Bruno police. They just really don't have time to, 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 to treat these people. So this is a, an element for the answer. What, what about persecutions? What will we do with Crimea, et cetera? These services, they just overload it with work. They don't have time to, for procedure. But this is a core question because this is also about justice. We are not speaking about political views. We are not speaking about opinions. We are speaking about acts, about criminal acts, because all these acts, they led to the fact that a human being was tortured, beaten. He was, and, and, and he witnessed that he, he, he saw a young man who fell and he was beaten to death. And precisely why this tiny, uh, uh, tiny man, Mikola, he did his best just not to fall and just trying to do his best not to be, not to be killed by, uh, by the people, by people who tortured him. Another element is that their grandson is called Stepan. And what they told us is that those locals who denounced them, who actually locals, collaborators, let's, let's call it in this way, collaborators with the Russian occupation regime, uh, they were actually saying, look at this family, they give a name of Stepan to their grandchildren. And, uh, well, meaning that they're given a name of Stepan due to Stepan Bandera, or in honor of Stepan Bandera. Which is, of course, hilarious and absurd thing because Stepan is a very, very widespread name in Ukraine. You can, uh, it's probably one of the most widespread names in, in the villages and uh, sometimes in the cities. And, um, actually it's, it's like in other languages. You have Stephen, you have Stefan, you have Stefan, you have Stefan, you have whatever else. It, it comes from a, uh, deep roots, uh, and uh, in Ukrainian it's Stepan, so it's it's a very normal name. Uh, but for them, for these collaborators, it was a sign that they are actually fans of Stepan Bandera. Yes, exactly. And this is a kind of uh, psychological pressure all the time about the surname, but also about positions in the house. They were trying to find. We don't even know what exactly, maybe literature, maybe weapons, maybe something else, but they never uh, found anything like that. And um, so this uh, first arrest, they survived this first arrest, but unfortunately this is, was not the last one. In summer, uh, on the 6th of July 2022, there were an important event in the village because it was a first strike of American HIMARS used by Ukrainian army against the village. A uh, couple of uh, hundreds of meters from the house of Mikola, and it destroyed an important logistic hub, Russian hub. So in a way that uh, there were, there were a lot of materials, a lot of weapons were destroyed, a lot of Russian soldiers lost their lives. And this was precisely the time when they went to see Mikola and his wife for the second time. And what they did at that time was even more cruel to the family than the first time, because not only they arrested him, 
but they transported him to Kupiansk. So he was Kupiansk, several kilometers from from Nechvolodivka, and without a car, it means that you, and without a transport, without buses, it means it's quite far away along. And uh, Natalia spent a lot of time just to, to get to know what was really happening. And so the same circles, they were trying, they were torturing him, asking him, beating him, torturing him with electricity. And it was happen just because they were suspicious about maybe he participated in a way uh, before the strike. Maybe he just informed Ukrainian armed forces about where this logistic hub was, was exactly. But in, in fact, it wasn't him. And then finally, finally, they did their, the most cruel thing because they released him. He was extremely weak because he was beaten, but he, they released him without any documents. So it was, it was like you are just killing somebody because in order to get back to, to his village, he had to cross maybe dozens of checkpoints. And everywhere you're asked to, 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 to show your papers. So and without papers, you look suspicious, etc. So he, they just released him. They maybe uh, didn't dare to kill him, uh, but just they were hoping that somebody else would kill him. And so Mikola stayed in Kupiansk. He found a family. He was able to walk for for several uh, several kilometers and he found a family so he stayed there and then the rumors came up to Natalia so she was informed that he is alive and she she managed to get to to Kupiansk leaving behind her uh, half of her fam family um, and she was able to stay him until the liberation so this is the story of this family and very friendly family and we actually saw them for the first time and we when we were leaving them uh it seemed that we are we, we became friends for a long time and we hope to come back really one day then we went to Kupiansk and Kupiansk really is a city right now so there are these frontline towns Kramatorsk, Slovyansk, Druzhkivka, Kostyantinivka. Uh, but Kupiansk is to another direction a little bit, right? Uh, looks different. So it's, it's it really looks like a frontline city. I would say uh, it's, it's it looks much more than uh, like a frontline city than uh, Slovyansk or even Kramatorsk. Yeah, normally you even need the authorization to get there for civilians, I guess. Only civilians who live there, they have and have papers, they can enter uh, the city. We managed to do so because we were on a volunteer trip, so we explained all the checkpoint. But I guess it was rather an exception uh, for, for civilians to get inside Kupiansk. Kupiansk is destroyed, but not to the extent as some cities and some towns and villages we've already seen, like Kamienka Dolina. So Kupiansk is still um, more or less okay, so with some destructions for sure. But uh, it's a ghost city because you don't see civilians in the streets. You see only military cars and military on the streets. So it looks like a fortress, maybe maybe like Bakhmut. 
during the last months. So some civilians are still there, but they are not showing up a lot on the streets. So they may be trying to spend as less time uh, outside as possible. And Kupiansk is important from the strategic point of view because Kupiansk also have a, an important railway hub, uh, Kupiansk Uzlovy, Vuzlovy. And this is precisely why uh, Russians did their best to capture it as soon as they could. To so, so, and then Ukrainian troops, they had some problems to liberate this part of Kupiansk, uh, this railway hub, but the, they were successful. But Russian troops at the very moment, that, that moment, they're still trying to get back because this is important for, for military logistics, for, for weapons and for many other things. So this is a um, hot spot now. So they are attacking all the time. Several other villages that we have visited are very, very close to the Russian border in the northern part of Kharkiv Oblast. One of them is called Hoptivka. And when we came here, actually, there was a, a shelling uh, in the village quite loud. So we didn't stay there for a long time because the locals uh, asked us to leave. They told us that this is shelling can be very dangerous. And it's really very close to the Russian border. So we actually saw the other side, the, 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 the Russian side. Yeah, it was four kilometers from the Russian border and the Lux checkpoint were a little bit lost in the region because GPS is not functioning properly. Let's explain also to our audience that if you're traveling in the front lines, uh, you, you, you should never rely on your GPS because GPS is uh, not functioning properly. So and we arrived to the last checkpoint and we were lost. We were trying to find Kazacha Lopan. Kazacha Lopan, this is another important place. Finally, we didn't manage to get in but Kazachalopani is situated precisely on the border and maybe also three, four kilometers from the border. And it was occupied for many months, starting from February 22 until September, October 22. So it is an important place with many tragic stories about torture as well, about all these things. But um, when you arrive to the checkpoint and you ask people how, where this where do we arrive if we take this road and so Ukrainian soldiers on the checkpoint told us this is one way trip so if you want to go there just precisely a couple of kilometers further you have Russia Russia so it's one way trip for you so if you follow this road it, it will be one way trip for you Hoptivka is another ghost village nobody mostly nobody is living here we met two ladies old ladies one of them, I guess, was something like 80 years old, maybe 90 years old. And another one was something like 50 or 60, maybe 60 years old. There were only two ladies living in a, a big uh, multi-story building, maybe five-story building out of several dozens of people. So they were the only people who were still there. Windows were broken, no gas, no electricity, no heating, no water. And uh, you can literally see Russia because this Hoptivka is also situated in a kind of hill. So you can literally see the Russian land uh, some some kilometers. And uh, I'm I'm almost sure, we have no proof, but I'm almost sure that the shelling was somehow linked to our presence there because we were, there were two cars and one car was white and another car was kind of military car. So it was, it was a sign that this car is for, for the Ukrainian army. So 
my guess is that they could detect our presence in the village, so that's why they started shelling and were asked to leave as soon as possible, just not to expose locals to danger, not to expose to danger ourselves. And maybe the last story we are going to tell you is a story that, uh, just briefly, that we have met a remarkable person uh, to whom we actually helped uh, other person to bring uh, a car, a, a minivan. Uh, just remember that all our travel, almost all our travel, are linked to a certain uh, elements that we are bringing very often to the army, very often to the evacuation teams. And these are pickups, big cars that we buy on various donations. So if you want to join these donations, we'll be very, very happy. Uh, you can support us on Patreon or you can um, actually send on PayPal ukraine.resistinggmail.com, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. So uh, we've met a remarkable person who was actually the head of Ukrainian Muslims, the, the chief mufti of Ukrainian Muslims, whose name is uh, Said Ismailov, and he is now a paramedic. So he started in a completely new life, um, and we visited him in, in Kostantinivka and in a very interesting place. So... This is also a, a story of transformation. I hope we will make an interview with him and publish on Ukraine World. But this is also one of those stories of big, big transformations which happen in Ukraine right now. So this is the time, the war is the time for great, great transformations, great changes when people start absolutely new, different life. Yes, exactly. So this was a podcast uh, explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. Uh, we just told you a few human stories related to this war. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who heads the international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. If you want to support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas, you can send funds to paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to follow us on social networks. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. <laughs>